Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Off air, Elizabeth Young and I were just saying happy Monday, everybody, to each other, which is odd. But this is the Monday drop of the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. That is Elizabeth Young. Dan Nathan will not be joining us today. A well-deserved day off. And by the way, stick around because... David Gellis, the author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism, an award-winning correspondent for the New York Times, he is joining us as well. You want to check that out because, Elizabeth, we have a special surprise for you, you not specifically you, but you and the remainder of the audience. So you might want to stick around for that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know what? I get just as surprised by these interviews as everybody else does. People probably think I get a preview. I do not. No, which would, you know, it, they call that organic. It's organic. These are not oh. scripted. Today, it's just the two of us, like the song, which you often tweet, which I dig, because from time to time, it is just the two of us, and today it is. But amongst the many things going on this week, the number that sort of stuck out like a sore thumb, or in your case, apparently a sore wrist, we will get into that in a second, but... <laughs> This empire manufacturing, you know, as you know, EY, I've never seen any of the Star Wars movies. And I guess one of them is like the Empire Strikes Back. But if you look at this number, (laughs) the Empire did not strike back. It was anything but. Uh, The Empire got struck is what it appears to me. Big change from last month. Last month's reading was 10.8%. This one came in at negative 31.8. Now, these are these are streaky data sets, I will admit. Or streaky or lumpy. We used to have this debate when I was an analyst. Do we call it streaky or lumpy? This is probably more of a lumpy data set. But the estimate was negative 3.9. So uh, disappointed by about 28 points. And that's a big deal. I think, you know, last month when we saw a positive little bump in it, there was some optimism that, oh, maybe things aren't as bad. And now that that month looks like a total fake out. So we are back down in the doldrums of manufacturing activity, at least in the Empire State. This is one of the first regional surveys we've gotten. So you look at the other regional surveys and and see if they follow suit. And then there's always an average that you can take uh, and look at what the activity appears to be in the economy across the country. And Note that, yes, this is manufacturing, not necessarily services, so it's a different part of the economy, but it should follow what PMIs tell us, and manufacturing PMIs have been in contraction for many months. So uh, it would make sense that these regional surveys are coming in a bit soft. I would go lumpy, not streaky. Of course, lumpy was the nickname of Bill Murray in, I believe it was Scrooge, and I mentioned Bill Murray for that reason, but also another one of his movies is sort of Groundhog Day, and I want to sort of opine on the Empire State, but in terms of Groundhog Day, seemingly doesn't matter what type of data we get. 
I look up in the S&P somewhere between 4120 and 4130, and that's been going on for the better part of a month and a half. So, you know, we can talk about all this data, all this news, debt ceilings, and we'll talk about that in a second. The S&P doesn't seem to care. And with the VIX again around 17 and a half, the market seems to be sort of whistling past all of this, Elizabeth. Yeah, well, it's complacency. At least that's what it feels like to me. I think it's interesting that the range that the S&P has been trading in actually got narrower. We were sort of bouncing around between, let's say, 3,900 and 4,200 for a while, and now we can't seem to get out of the 4,100 handle. So uh, the range has gotten narrower, which then you ask, all right, what does that mean? What that means to me is that there hasn't been a big enough catalyst or most of the stuff that we already know is priced in at this point. So something has to really materially change. And there are a few things that we know are coming up on the horizon, debt ceiling debate that's obviously heated up recently. And it, it sounds like we've got an unofficial deadline of sometime in the first week of June where we may not meet our obligations. So that's a big catalyst that could either call relief into the market in some way, shape or form, or it could push us the other direction. And I would point people to what happened in summer of 2011 when U.S. debt got downgraded. Not that that, I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen here, but think about that period. We did not have all of the headwinds that we're dealing with right now. U.S. debt got downgraded and the market really took it on the chin for a while and then kind of got stuck in a flatlining range uh, until it was able to break out to the upside in 2012. But, uh, you know, I would just keep an eye on that. The thing that I think is interesting about this range is that it's still a seems like a pretty positive sentiment. And I don't know if you saw or heard about the interview with Paul Tudor Jones today, uh, where he said he thinks the Fed has done hiking rates. I concur with that. But he followed that up with saying, what if this is basically like 2006, where the market grinds higher slowly after the Fed stops hiking rates until and unless there's some sort of catalyst or big news event that sends it in the other direction. But that took about a year. So, you know, it's possible that we just kind of grind through this pattern for a while still. Paul Tudor Jones, Squawk Box this morning. I definitely think they are done when talking about the Fed. They could probably declare victory, which I don't know if that's the right choice of words. They could probably declare victory now because if you look at CPI, it's been declining 12 straight months. That's never happened before in history. As you mentioned, he made reference to 06, uh, obviously sort of the grind that we saw in that period of time, only then to be followed by what we saw in 08, 09. And I'm not saying all those things were related, but they typically are. My pushback to him would be declaring victory is a bit of a stretch. And I think you would agree as well. I think we all would submit the Fed is probably done. But declaring victory in terms of inflation is one thing. Declaring victory in terms of the market, I think, is an entirely different thing. And again, I want to emphasize, you know, this lag effect that I've been waiting for that seemingly is starting to happen now. And you look at the Empire State Manufacturing, I think that's a data point. There are many is starting to kick in. And to think that somehow the market's going to be impervious to that, again, I don't know under what set of circumstances that happens other than this whole passive investing money flows. Nobody seems to care. It doesn't matter. The market just wants to go higher. So I hear what he's saying. I would sort of push back on the language. I'd push back a little bit on his reference points. And I also would say this. I think today in 2023, things happen a lot faster than it did in 06, 07. So, you know, it's one of those things. Things happen slowly then all at once. And I th I happen to think that's where we're on the verge of here in terms of both the economy and the market. I'm not going to speak for him. I don't know exactly what he meant uh, about declaring victory, but perhaps just the trajectory of inflation coming down and it didn't pop back up. I think it is premature to assume that it's not going to pop back up and that we won't see a month or two where the reading actually goes up a little bit. But yeah, I wouldn't declare victory at 4.9% year over year, right? That's still double what the target is, although that's not necessarily the metric that we use to, to look at the target, but it doesn't matter. Any, any metric that you're looking at to measure inflation is still above target. So it's not over yet. And we are not going to come out of that necessarily victorious this month. I've said this a few times and, and I continue to do this. One of the, the checks and balances that I just mentally do for myself if I have a certain take or a certain opinion that's persisted and I feel like it's not really coming out the way that I thought it would, I sit back and say, okay, try to imagine fast forward six to 12 months from now, what would the headlines look like? If, if I were wrong, what would the headlines have to look like? 
And in this case, and I, I think I've said this on Squawk Box actually, in this case, if I fast forward six to 12 months from now, if I'm wrong about this whole thing and we somehow make it through this unscathed and inflation comes back down and everybody is fine and profit margins stay afloat, all the things, right? That would mean that the headlines would have to say something like, Fed raises rates the fastest in 40 years, 500 basis points in 13 months, and we all sort of trot merrily on our way, right? Valuations remained elevated 17 to 18 times, never had to dip back down, market bottomed in October, credit tightened but never broke, you know, banks failed but no big deal, right? These are headlines that just, they don't make sense to me. And I would be absolutely shocked if those are the headlines that we see at some point in 2024 that, you know, hey, look at that. It all worked. Everything's okay. So I still cannot get to the point where I feel like, you know what, we've solved the problem and we're starting to head in another direction. You know, it's interesting. I look at the small caps and I know you do as well. Uh, I want to be clear. And you've had tremendous calls on those over the years, especially the time that we've spent together on market call on the tape of those things. With that said, you know, as measured by the IWM, which is the Russell 2000 ETF, if you look at the level we're trading at, I think it's around 174 or so. Now, the IWM really has not been able to get out of its own way since this time last year, number one. Number two, we are significantly lower than the all-time high it put in, I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, around December-ish of 2021. That's number two. And number three, and this I find really maybe the most interesting, as we get down towards this 168 level, this is where we sort of topped out right before the world went to shit in February, March of 2020, if you go back and look. The IWM went from about 168 down to about 101 in a straight line. So sort of under the radar, the small caps don't trade particularly well. Now, people will say that's predominantly banks. Okay, I get it. But there are other things going on as well. And then if you look at the high yield index, I look at the HYG, it has bounced off that low we put in the fall, but not in a meaningful way, not in a way that's going to give you the encouragement that everything is okay. And I'm not suggesting it's in some sort of crisis mode right now, but that to me is not signaling red night now, but it's definitely got the yellow caution signal up. So those two things I look at and it continues to give me pause. Am I on the right track here? Or am I looking in the wrong spots? Yeah, I mean those are those are two pretty classic indicators of risk and beta in the market. And I would say a couple things about this. If I put my macro hat on and just think about what recessions look like and what typically causes recessions. Usually you have I would say two different causes. A lot of them can fall into one of these two buckets. The first of which is some sort of exogenous shock, right? War or a COVID outbreak things like that, a global pandemic that shuts everything down. That's an exogenous shock. Maybe there's a natural disaster. The other category is the Fed raises rates, right? And I mean, literally, you can look back at almost every single recession and almost every single one is going to fall into one of those two categories. This would be a scenario if we do have a recession where this is a pretty classic, the Fed raised rates scenario. Now you can argue that the reason that they had to raise rates was different this time, or it's unique because of the supply chain issue, whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. It caused inflation because demand outpaced supply. Doesn't matter what the cause of that was. Demand outpaced supply, inflation became an issue. The Fed had to raise rates in response. And if that's what puts us into a recession, some of the stuff that's happening right now is symptomatic of that, right? High yield spreads getting wider. I think they deserve to be much wider than they are. So I'm sort of waiting and watching for that to happen but small caps under pressure. And look, financials don't make up that much of the small cap index. If anything, it's more of a sentiment spillover and a risk spillover, a risk off spillover into small caps. But if this is a classic type of recession scenario, you would expect that small caps don't do well going into it. They're not supposed to, right? They should do pretty well coming out of it. So the timing of that is important to watch. One of the other things I would say is if it's a classic recession scenario, things like cyclical sectors, financials, energy, materials. If you look at some of the cyclical sectors and their weight and how it's moved in the S&P over the last even three to six months, and then look at something like add Apple and Microsoft together, right? And how that the weight in the index has moved for those two, or even just add the fangs together, how the weight has moved in the index, completely outpacing 
entire sectors, that handful of stocks completely outpacing entire sectors of the index that are cyclical. Again, to me, that's a pretty classic pre-contraction signal. Small caps would fall into that bucket. High yields slowly grinding up in spreads would fall into that bucket as well. It's interesting. I've been watching the NHL playoffs, as I'm sure you have as well. The yeah. Boston Bruins On the edge had, of my seat. Yeah. They had a remarkable, <laughs> actually, an historic regular season where they broke records for wins, points, only to be vanquished, which is a great word, in the first round of the playoffs by the Florida Panthers, who by all, you know, by all counts, sort of limped in and snuck into the playoffs. Panthers on the precipice of playing in the Eastern Conference Finals. Okay, all that being said, these outcomes were not what we expected. So here's one. Let's game out sort of this debt ceiling thing because I could see a scenario, and it makes it makes zero sense to me. But if they come back arm in arm before President Biden goes on his trip wherever he's going, or if something were to happen over the next two weeks in the positive uh, light, the S and P is going to be up fifty to seventy-five handles, which again doesn't make sense because it's sort of like you're, you're rewarding something that should have been taken care of all along. Like I don't think the downside has been priced in, so the market seems to rally on things that should have been a foregone conclusion, if that makes sense. So I don't know, maybe I'm guilty of it, like not recognizing the fact that this will be probably rectified and the market will probably rally on it. And we're going to have a conversation like, well, that's crazy because it never really went lower in the midst of the crisis itself. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think it would be another situation, much like what happened with the banks in March and April, where, okay, crisis averted, could have been so much worse. And I feel like there are a lot of different things that are feeling that way. Earnings season, right? We still came in negative, but we beat severely lowered guidance, severely lowered targets. And then people were like, well, it's not as bad as it could have been, right? So if we resolve the debt ceiling before June 1st, well, it's not as bad as it could have been. We could have defaulted on a bunch of obligations. We could have been downgraded. But here's the thing. There's also a risk, which I feel like is the theme of the market and the economy right now. There's a, a risk or a possibility, maybe not a risk, a possibility that they raise the debt ceiling temporarily. We make it through summer, right? We sort of kick the can down the road. We stay in this weird range. You and I continue to do this every Monday and we talk about this stupid range and blah, 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 right? We're bored hearing ourselves talk about it anymore. But then time really runs out when the budgets are due in September. And I don't like to look at the calendar as a guide for how the market is going to act. But I will tell you this. I feel like, number one, the Fed surprises people in fall. If they're going to surprise somebody or say something that we're going to talk about for the next year, I feel like it always happens in fall. Number two, we know that there's usually a pretty volatile period. If we're ripe for one, there's usually a pretty volatile period, sometimes September, October, in the market after everybody comes back from the summer, trading resumes, we get rational about what's actually going on. So I think that that would actually be a worse scenario if we raise it temporarily and then we're just kind of sitting here twiddling our thumbs until early fall to find out that we didn't actually solve the problem. I agree with you a hundred percent. So here's the put, not that it's pushback, but here's part of the conversation. As we get closer and closer to June, and it's remarkable, we're almost halfway through the year. I think there's an inordinate amount of people who probably are negative and have set themselves up that way. So with each passing day that the market is not behaving in a way that their position suggests that it should, these people will start to chase. And we talk about this a lot. There is no, There are no real ramifications for being bullish and being wrong. And this is going to, I'm sure, infuriate people, but it happens to be true. But when you're set up bearish, or if you've talked through a bearish lens for quite some time and the market continues, not to necessarily trade in your face because that's not what's happening in the broader market. It's sort of doing the grind. But with each passing day, it becomes more and more difficult. And at a certain point, the market's going to start to work against you only on the fact that people will start to chase performance. How close, if at all, are we to that, do you think, Elizabeth? Uh, I think we've seen a couple different iterations of it already. I don't think that we're, I don't think we're that close, to be fair. I think that there's probably more chasing to be had. 
I think there's still a lot of influence out there by shorts that are in the market, and there would have to be a decent amount of short covering that would happen first. But we're not far off from it. I mean, if you look at valuations, we're hovering somewhere between the high 17s and low 18s on a weekly basis. That is ridiculously high, especially for a 10-year that's at 3.5%. And that's down off of the the peaks of the year, but especially for a 10-year at 3.5% and for a lot of the contractionary signals that are being sent out there and a lot of the warning signals that are being sent in the rest of the market. So I think it continues to be the case that the bond market is saying something totally different from the stock market, but because we've been stuck in this range and we have not gotten out of that 4,100 level, maybe we've got a little bit more upside to go. Maybe there's some sort of period, uh, although brief, of irrational exuberance that could happen, and then that sends it back down. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, this has been one of the most confusing and frustrating market environments for me, uh, and I know that I'm not alone on that. And even, even for people who are optimistic, it's confusing and frustrating, right? So this has been a time where I think we're, we're going to look back on it and say, wow, that was, that was a long time to be sideways and a long time to not know what was about to happen. It's definitely been a slog for both sides to your point. So this week, and I know we don't want to play individual stocks because that's not what we do with you, but this week we have some really important retailers. And I don't necessarily know if they're a tell on the consumer. I haven't been able to really figure it out, but people will make that leap. So we have Home Depot tomorrow before the bell, important. TJ Maxx Wednesday before the bell, along with Target. And then on Thursday, you have Walmart, which, again, before the market. Those are some pretty big deals. You throw Foot Locker in on Friday, and you got a decent swath of retail earnings. Again, I'm not suggesting they'll mean anything in terms of the consumer, but people will make that leap. Anything you're watching for specifically, I think many of these retailers have figured out their inventory problems, their inventory build, and some of the things that got them in trouble a year or so ago. Now I think it just comes down to margins and their ability to pass on costs to their customers. Thoughts? Yeah, I think the inventory thing is going to be an interesting story. We'll, we should at least have maybe preliminary confirmation that they took care of it, right? So the problems had been that there was way too much inventory built up. They had the wrong stuff sitting in inventory and consumers had changed their behavior, whether they started to buy other stuff or slowed down their spending. But that happened to be a pretty big drag on a lot of those retailers. What I think you could start hearing is that they're not building up as much inventory, which as a signal, first of all, it won't necessarily drag on their stock price. But as a signal, it means that they're expecting lighter demand if they're not building up as much inventory. The pass-through pricing... I mean, you and I have talked about this so many times. Companies have passed through all, it seems like all the prices, right? And they haven't really stopped. I think that is one of the places where we're seeing, okay, it's gotten a little bit much on the pass-throughs and it's difficult now to justify more increases because we all know that inflation has come down. Not down enough, but we all know that it's come down. So if companies are still raising prices or claiming that they're not going to lower prices, even if we know that they're still trying to unload some inventory, something about that doesn't match up, right? That thought process doesn't gel. And at some point, they are going to have to lower prices. Home Depot will be an interesting one. And, and any company that's sort of housing adjacent, we haven't seen a huge drop off in home prices, which I think we were all sort of expecting. But the explanation for that is that the market is just sort of frozen. Unless you're forced to move and get out of your 3% mortgage, nobody's moving right? Buyers don't want to pay the prices that are out there. Sellers don't want to go and get a six and a half percent mortgage. So the market is frozen. You don't find out that home prices have moved unless homes change hands. And there just hasn't been a lot of changing hands. Home Depot and, and any other company that would benefit from people not buying new houses. And what I mean by that is if you're not buying a new house, then what do you do? You fix up the one you're living in. And that could happen as well. My sense is that people have done a lot of that already. So I don't know how much of a boost there will be. The only thing about, you know, if you look into the spring season, summer season, people are probably doing a little bit more activity around the house than they would be in the middle of winter. But I, I think the housing adjacent retail stocks or just stocks in general that are housing adjacent will be really interesting to watch from here. I have a societal question for you that sort of before we get, yeah, you're going to like this. And it's sort juicy. of, I think it speaks to the market. 
I know I'm guilty of it. I think it's a society we are as well. You want things to happen immediately to reinforce your belief system or your positions, and things just don't happen that quickly. But in professional sports, and you see what's happening, the Milwaukee Bucks, who've had you know three or four years of just extraordinary basketball, I think they had the best record in the NBA this year. They fired their head coach. Phoenix Suns have been an excellent team for the last few years, fired their head coach. New York Rangers, who are coming off two consecutive 100-point seasons and an Eastern Conference final last year, fired their head coach. My point is this. Um, have we gotten to a point where you got to perform immediately, otherwise you're out? And to a certain extent, in terms of the market, again, it gets back to that performance thing. You know, people are up against it. And that's, to me, the bull case is exactly that, the immediacy of everything and people's lack of patience. Thoughts? Yeah, the instant gratification. I think it, it is a cultural thing. And our attention spans have gotten shorter. Our patience has gotten shorter. We want instant gratification for everything. I also think sometimes it's misguided, though. And and look, I have a, a biased opinion with a dad who was a coach for a long time who always takes the heat if the team doesn't do well. But I think people forget the coach isn't the one on the court shooting the buckets, right? If they miss a shot, the coach didn't miss it. The player missed it. So you can fire the coach all you want. If they still miss their free throws, it's not his fault they miss their free throws. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. I would I would compare that to Fed speak. When we have a speaker and there's like headlines about somebody said something and you sit back and you're like, they don't even get a vote. That person doesn't even vote this year. <laughs> Why? Who cares, right? But the market will move and we kind of extrapolate it. But it's this like instant, in this moment, this headline means everything, right? And in 15 minutes, we're over it. But it's the same thing with you want that reassurance, you want that gratification of, oh, I was right. You know, I'm bullish and the market was up 100 points yesterday and I was right. Okay, well, you were right yesterday. You're not right today. And you have to think about that from an investor standpoint. If you're a trader, sure, think about it that way. But I would argue probably most people that are listening to this are investors, not necessarily traders. Or most people that listen to me are investors, not necessarily traders. And if you're constantly chasing that instant gratification, you are going to be chasing your own tail around and around and around and probably not making a lot of money. Many people say that patients are for doctors. I would push back and say patients is a virtue. And I think we all need to be a bit more patient as this thing continues to play out. So as always, EY from SoFi, wonderful to have you on these Mondays. As I said, Dan, taking a well-deserved day off, but stick around people, because as I mentioned, David Gellis, the author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism, just on that title alone, you want to listen to that interview. And we have a little bit of an offering for you as well. So see you on the other side. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. David Gellis is the New York Times best-selling author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism and an award-winning correspondent for The New York Times. He currently writes for The Climate Desk and previously wrote for The Business Section and was the corner office columnist. David, welcome to On The Tape. Dan, every once in a while, 
we get the opportunity to speak somebody, and I, this this is high praise from Guy Adami. Badass. We get to speak to a badass. And in this case, in speaking with David Gellis, who joins us now on the On The Tape podcast, we're doing exactly that. David, how are you? I'm great. I'm thrilled to be talking to two other badasses. No, 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 no. Maybe there was a time back, as Dan will tell you, you know, 1950s, where that label was perfect for me. No longer, though. Dan, though, probably more so. But it is an honor to have you with us. And we're going to talk about your book. But first, we just want to talk about you a little bit. Talk about the career arc that you've had. New York Times, best-selling author, all the things that our listeners want to hear. Well, listen, I cut my trenches as a deals reporter like 15 years ago at the FT. And I always say covering M&A and covering the street is straight up the best training you can have to be a journalist because you have to learn about speed. You have to learn about sources. You have to learn who to trust. You have to know when people are lying to you. And I did that for years and I absolutely loved it. You know, I was fortunate to graduate and go on to do other bigger, exciting beats like the stuff I'm doing now. But at the end of the day, part of me still feels like I'm a deals reporter every day when I get out of bed. David is one of our guests, Guy, who is not here for the Comos tequila because David and I know each other over the last few years. I think it's coursing through our veins. We can thank Joe Marchese, obviously, for that. But, you know, it's funny because Guy and I, and David, you know this, Guy's been on CNBC it's 2006. He was one of the original members of Fast Money. And at the time, everything that you just said about reporting on your beat, Guy was a market practitioner. He started doing this show. And you know, you start thinking about the markets through a totally different lens when you're trying to demystify things or kind of explain things the way that you see them as a market participant. I started doing it in 2009. And you and I have talked a bit about this, but it's interesting to me, you're one of these guys, you're not in it for the access. And we've all seen this in business business journalism specifically. There's a lot of access journalism. And the book that you wrote that we're going to get to about Jack Welch that many people, you know, revered for so long, both in business and academia, and the list goes on and on. But the title is The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America. And that's not the sort of book that a lot of business journalists would write if you want to be, you know, kind of, you know, being able to kind of navigate through those trenches, as you said before. Talk to us a little bit about that. You started at the FT, you wrote a column, the corner office column, um, and that was your beat, but you've transitioned in the last year to climate change and, and you have an angle on climate change on it. So talk to us a little bit about that evolution and how you got to where you are. Yeah, for sure. Well, from being a deals reporter, I then went on to cover things like tech and media. I, I did a lot of conventional sort of standard beats as well. But but there was this journey from being, frankly, and I, I, it's been a process for me to reflect on it myself and sort of come to terms with it, of being a bit more deferential to CEOs and deferential to comms departments at big companies than I am today. You know, I think as a young reporter, especially you mentioned that access when a CEO wants to talk to you, there's a little razzle dazzle. You sort of, it's easy to get sort of overwhelmed and sort of take everything they say at face value. It was really a process of doing, you know, straight stories about real newsmakers, but then starting to cover real scandals. You know, I interviewed Bernie Madoff in prison. That was a wake-up call that everything people are saying isn't always true to you. Then it was a situation where, oh my gosh, I'm covering the fallout from the Boeing 737 MAX crashes. That places, you know, a much different lens on one of these iconic American companies. And then it was through experiences like that, through really reflecting on the role of CEOs in our society after writing the corner office column, where I interviewed CEOs for five years for the New York Times, that in 2020, I sort of had this realization that this one guy, Jack Welch, is sort of the key to understanding, I would argue, like the last three generations of business history in this country. And it's not always a pretty picture. It's fascinating. And there's a obviously, there's a level of irreverence you have to have. There's a level of courage you clearly need to have. And there's also a level of natural curiosity that comes into this as well, because far too often, I think misguided as it is, people just think, well, these mostly men, but fortunately now some women as well have gotten to this position. They must be brilliant. Why would I even think to question them? So to that point, you know, what was that natural curiosity that got you down that road? 
there was a moment, and I don't have the exact light bulb going off in my head at the kitchen table moment that I recognized, but there was a certain point where I started thinking less about the CEOs themselves and the earnings reports. And I started being less interested in like the 10 Qs and more interested in the people who were working at the companies and what their lives were like. And I sort of just like, in a way, like opened my aperture and just sort of zoomed out. And I was like, all right, that curiosity led me beyond sort of the quarterly reporting and the deals reporting to actually understand, well, what's the role of these companies in society? You know, like what happens when a company shows up and invests a lot of money in a community? What happens when a company that's been in a community for decades suddenly disappears? And it's those human stories that I started getting way more interested in beyond sort of like, what's the executive comp package for ABC CEO? And is it bigger or smaller than last year? And what does that say about where the stock of that company might be? Talk to us a little bit about now. Again, you, you've interviewed dozens, if not hundreds of CEOs. You wrote that column. You had the M&AB. Now you've transitioned over the last year to climate change, but you're taking a specific approach about it. What was the impetus for that? I mean, obviously, a lot of what you culminated in the, in the book is really about the last 30 years of capitalism. And Guy and I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out ESG and, and really how it kind of fits into, you know, the landscape in which we invest in which we comment on. To be frank, I I'm very confused about it. Guy has actually had his finger on the beat, and I think he was one of the first guys to say that this push into ESG was probably one of the best things that happened to big energy or big oil. In hindsight, you know, when you think about the last few years and the disruption of supply chains and the geopolitical issues and, and, and the list goes on and on. But what does it mean to you and why was it a beat that you really wanted to take on? And especially, I guess, you know, as you kind of tweeted at the time, the intersection between government in the private sector. Well, just stepping back, just as a journalist, I mean, this is the everything story. This is, if you step back and think about it, we're talking about remaking the entire world's energy sector from soup to nuts as fast as we can, because if we don't, the weather's going to keep getting worse and causing natural disasters. I mean, like that is a story that literally touches every company, every individual, every city. And so just the magnitude of uh, being able to sort of start to try to wrap my head around it, there was that innate curiosity. But then when I started to see it through the business lens, let's be honest, right? Like the business community, especially the fossil fuel industry, in large part helped us get us into this mess. It is now clear, whether you like it or not, that if we're gonna get out of this mess, business is going to have to be just as big a part of the solution. And figuring out what that transition looks like, how we get the private sector to really lean into solving what, again, I argue is sort of the biggest collective action problem we've ever faced as a species, and what that looks like, who's gonna lose money, who's gonna make trillions of dollars in the decades ahead, that, again, just as a business reporter, is an amazing story. It's an amazing business story, and I happen to agree with you. I just want that on the record. But I'll also say this, and you know this a lot better than I do, this topic is as partisan as it gets. It comes right down on party lines, for better or for, well, not for better or for worse, for worse. And it's remarkable that whether you're on one side of the aisle or another, you're either acknowledging this and embracing it and trying to deal with it, or there's just complete deniability. Like it doesn't exist. You know, go back over history and it, depending on the network you're watching, you're going to get two. It's like you live on two separate planets. How do you deal with that? Well, first, I will acknowledge that we are talking about a uniquely American psychosis. You go talk to our friends in London, in Europe, in Asia. There's no partisan debate over the reality that the climate is changing because of fossil fuel emissions. You know, this is this is gravity in the rest of the world. So let's just acknowledge that we've got some unique challenges in this country. But absolutely, one of them is that the issue of climate change is partisan. I think what's so interesting right now and what's keeping me up right now is the reality that so much of the investment that's going into clean tech right now, battery companies, wind and solar farms, is going into red states. A majority of the money that's getting spit out of the IRA is destined for states that former President Trump carried, even in his second election. And yet, 
so many politicians there are still essentially working against the IRA, working against President Biden's climate agenda. That, I think, creates this really complicated tension between what's in really the best interest of constituents and voters in those counties and the economies in those counties and these deeply held partisan fault lines that you alluded to. There's no easy answer as to how that's all going to shake out. But again, you want to talk about a good story? There's there's one more. As Dan said earlier, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, by the way, but I do think that there are a number of different factors that I think led to the rebirth of the energy stocks in this country. And there's no denying that, especially the big three, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, have all done extraordinarily well over the last few years in terms of their stock price. But the three things that I think led to that were this whole ESG initiative, which I support, by the way, the fact that front month crude went to minus $39 a barrel in April of 2020, I think, don't at me if I'm wrong, but is right around there. And the third thing being, it forced these companies through the Biden administration, some of the rhetoric, to really take a hard look at what they were doing. All those three things came together, and these companies are probably about as powerful as they've ever been. But I would also submit, and I'm curious whether you agree or not, I think they can be part of the solution going forward, not part of the problem. Thoughts on that? Listen, I'd like to believe it, right? And when you look at the resources they have, when you look at the expertise they have in you know, moving gas and liquids above and below ground, you got to hope that they get real serious about trying to rapidly reduce their emissions and find ways to you know, capture and store other emissions out there. The reality is, you know, I don't see a whole lot to me that suggests that that is their first, second and third priorities by all accounts. Right. There is continued focus on continued exploration, continued drilling and continued production. I mean, that is still the mantra coming out of that industry, as you well know. And we just saw what happened with Willow. Right. And it was sort of astonishing to see the Biden administration essentially walk it back some of their campaign talk and let that go forward. So listen, I sure hope are a big part of the solution going forward. Right now, I think that some of the biggest strides in reducing emissions are frankly coming from the power generation sector. It's really the utilities and and some of their generation mix that is starting to bend the curve on emissions in this country. We're starting to see it take hold in transportation. But, you know, despite engine number one coming in and getting its board seats, you don't see Exxon talking about, you know, like a no carbon future where they stop drilling. You know, there are 100 years plans to keep this going for, for all the companies you mentioned and more. So, David, the, the point about, you know, how this kind of falls on partisan lines and, and the investment, though, also being in red states or a lot of it. And, and I have a couple really things that I'd love explained to me a little bit. If you think about what's going on with the debt ceiling debate right now, uh, a lot of Republicans, okay, are trying to roll back, to your point, a lot of the spending that's earmarked for this in the IRA, which is kind of ironic in a way because it's it's basically, if you are in one of those states and you are voting for these people, it's against your better interest economically, whatever you believe about what's causing the planet to get hotter, okay, or warmer. I find that interesting, but I also find it interesting that a guy like Elon Musk, who was kind of the poster child for a, a lot of this, over the last, let's call it 10 or 15 years, has moved, you know, Tesla's headquarters from California to Texas to make all of your points. They've taken lots of subsidies over the years from the government to do that. How does he figure in this as as far as the way you're thinking about it from a reporting standpoint? Well, Dan, I know you have strong thoughts on Elon, so I'm going to tread lightly here. I was just having a thought experiment earlier this year, and I said, what if instead of Elon getting distracted with crypto and Twitter and even space, what if he was just the climate guy? What if he had taken his position as the richest man on earth and doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on all the credibility he had, especially several years ago, as really a vanguard, you know, business genius who understood how to make emissions reducing technologies mainstream. And what if that's all he had been focused on for the last five or six years? It's, you know, it's it's a counterfactual. We'll never know. But I think I can't help but see it as a missed opportunity. Here was the richest man on earth with enormous cultural credibility who had the world's attention 
And he obviously chose to do very different things with it. Now, Tesla, you know, we wouldn't be in the EV situation. We would, we are domestically and probably globally as well without Tesla. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. But I just can't help but wonder what else he could have done. I think it was a year ago today, or maybe I'm off by a couple days, that you published an article in the Times how Jack Welch's reign at GE gave us Elon Musk's Twitter feed, which is really a, a fantastic article. You should read it. I don't know, Dan, can you, what do they call those things, those show notes things? What are they they call them show notes, so we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, you can do that. That's fantastic. Well, we should because it's a great article. But I want to talk about Jack Welch, and I want to talk about your book. And we're going to actually, Dan, we're going to do one of our book giveaways. You want to tell folks what they can do? You guys know how you can annoy Amanda. You can take a screenshot of a review that you leave for On The Tape Podcast in one of your favorite podcast stores. You can send it to contact at risk reversal. The first 100 of you who do that, we're going to send you um, a copy of David's fine uh, book, which is coming out on paperback. You know, some of you guys, you like the hardcover, you like it kind of like the way it looks on your bookshelf. Others of you like putting it in your knapsack or your Merce like Guy has and just taking it with you because it's a bit lighter. So leave a review, send it to Contact at Risk Reversal. We're going to send the first 100 you of this book. And I got to tell you, you know, Guy, we've had a bunch of authors on the pod over the last couple of years. And this is one of the books that actually reads like a novel. And, and I mean that seriously because the man in which you are detailing over decades, David, he kind of comes out as the villain, but there's a lot of really redeeming factors to this guy right and so like talk to us a little bit about how you got here you were writing the corner office you talked to a lot of ceos was there some ceos out there that you know and like and trust who kind of put this bug in your ear a little bit like how did you get to jack welch and you alluded to it a little bit from your business reporting but how did you zero in and say i'm going to spend two years of my life hunkering down i was talking to you and your lovely wife the other night about this and and she talked a little bit and i'm not going to get into some of the personal stuff but this was a journey for you it was during the pandemic but how did you arrive on Jack Welch as the guy that you wanted to write this book? And you did a great job because it was a New York Times bestseller. Well, hey, first off, guys, thank you so much for the generous giveaway. That means everything. And it just means more people are going to be thinking about this stuff, which is which is the goal. I want people chewing over this legacy and coming to their own conclusions. The conclusion I drew was that after 15 years as a business reporter, there was one singular guy who was at the root of so many of the problems I kept running into, and it was Jack. And here's how I arrived there. I wrote this corner office column for five years at the Times, where I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of CEOs. And one name kept coming up in these conversations. And it wasn't Steve Jobs. It wasn't Zuck or Bezos. It was Jack Welch, who had been retired for 20 years. And that just bugged me. I was like, why on earth is Jack Welch living rent-free in the minds of today's executives. What the heck was going on? I didn't know. It was just bugging me. And then here's what happened. In 2019 into 2020, I was part of the team at the New York Times that really investigated Boeing in the aftermath of the 737 MAX crashes. And we quickly understood that there was an engineering problem. There was bad hardware. There was bad software. But not long after that, we understood that there was this much deeper cultural problem at Boeing. And when we started exploring the roots of that cultural problem, all roads led back to Jack Welch. In 1997, Boeing merges with McDonnell Douglas. It's effectively a reverse takeover where the McDonnell Douglas management team, led by a former Jack Welch protege, Harry Stonecipher, takes over Boeing, implants the DNA of McDonnell Douglas, which Stonecipher had imported directly from GE, parroting Jack Welch's mannerisms, his priorities, and that becomes the providing like operating system at Boeing. And who do we see replace Stonecipher after he's ousted? Jim McNerney, right? Jack Welch's number two, who lost out in the race to take over the company to Jeff Immelt, who comes in as chairman of the board right after McNerney, Dave Calhoun, another longtime GE executive who was even seen as the dark horse candidate to replace Welch in 2001 when he stepped down. And it is still Calhoun to this day who is running that company. So we've had three of the last four CEOs of this company study directly under Welch and a raft of other executives come from GE. And when you look at the Jack Welch playbook, slashing costs, 
going to war with the unions, doubling down on outsourcing, doubling down on offshoring, massive buybacks, massive executive comp, a move to do whatever it takes to keep the stock price ticking up, irrespective of the long-term consequences to R&D, to culture. That's the story of Boeing over the last 25 years. And when I sat there and realized like, oh my gosh, this played out at Boeing in the same way it played out at GE in the 80s and 90s, that was the moment. And I was sitting at this very table in my kitchen when I realized that. It's an absolute playbook. And Jack Welch was nicknamed Neutron Jack for the reasons you just mentioned. He'd buy these companies up. He would gut them, effectively getting rid of everything on the inside, leaving the structure up. It was a fabulous nickname. I'm sure he wasn't all that thrilled with it, or maybe in some ways he was. I can't speak to it. I actually did meet him in later years. I would not say that we knew each other, but I also say this. There is a huge amount of people out there that to this day view Jack Welch as sort of at the pinnacle of corporate America. So this book is going to fly in the face of everything they hold dear. And we sort of danced around this before, but the blowback you've probably gotten and will get in the months to come is going to be in a word interesting. Can you speak to that? Listen, right after the book published, Jeff Immelt, who I know, who I interviewed at length for the book, wrote a post on LinkedIn that said Jack was pretty damn good. And it was his defense of his former mentor and the man who passed the baton to him to take over GE. And in it, he talked about in his vision, you know, all the things that Jack got right. And I couldn't help, right? I couldn't help but write right back. <laughs> I clapped back at Jeff and I wrote a really detailed post pointing to all the things he had said about Jack over the years that I got to believe revealed his true intentions. So listen, there is still Jack Welch hagiographies out there. There are still lots of ways. And you said a guy, you know, he was incredibly smart. He had real intuitive ways that he figured out how to optimize the efficiency in a big organization. I'm not trying to take any of that away from him. But at the end of the day, if you look at his priorities, if you look at where he invested, where he didn't invest, where he cut, and really the motivations for it, and who at the end of the day he was trying to help, it's a brutal picture. You know, when you look at the, some of the problems that this country is facing, I live here in New York City. Like you guys do, you know, you walk around the streets, it's ugly. And so much of that is because we have not invested in manufacturing, we have not invested in our people. We, you know, we got into a cycle of really letting the wealth created by our multinational corporations, you know, the things that make this country so great, not enough of that money, I got to say, was filtering down and getting to the real people in this country. That's a big problem we're facing as a society. And when I think about the roots of that, Jack is a part of the problem. In your chapter one, I mean, it starts out like this, and I think it's pretty fascinating because it feels a little bit about the period in which Jack took over in 1980 or 81, but you start out by saying it was 1980 and the country was languishing culturally, politically, and economically. The previous decade had offered up a series of indignities that seemed to question the premise of American exceptionalism. And I think that's really interesting. You literally could write that about the current period right now, but that was the period in which Jack took over at GE. Talk to us a little bit about that. Were you seeing lots of similarities as you were doing the reporting for this book in 2020 that you felt like in the period in which you started to really do some heavy research, which you probably didn't know a whole heck of a lot about in that kind of late 70s, early 80s period? For sure. I think there are parallels. I think there are also big differences, right? I don't want to take anything away from some of the vibrancy in our economy today, right? We, we remain super innovative. We remain very competitive in a number of ways. We are maybe experiencing some renaissance in manufacturing. I think my concern is just that it's still, it's so unevenly distributed. And when I looked back to those post-war years, you know, what some people call the golden age of capitalism, the mid forties, the fifties, the sixties, the wealth being created by companies like GE and Boeing and IBM and Xerox, it was just much more evenly distributed. You did not see CEOs taking home $250 million a year, while people they work for are literally making minimum wage. 
That just wasn't happening in the same way. But that's the world we live in now. And so when I think about us, yeah, being close to this breaking point, it feels like sometimes, and feel that same potential for sort of transformative change, I actually hope and sort of believe with all this talk about ESG and stakeholder capitalism, which is mostly talk for now, let's be honest, that maybe, just maybe, we're at sort of the edge of this pendulum swing and perhaps companies are starting to swing back in the other direction. And I think you can see it. You know, I point to a couple examples in the book. Companies like PayPal have really said, we're just going to start paying our people more because we don't feel comfortable with them, you know, having to choose between textbooks and gas money. We don't want our people to be having a hard time because they can't pay their medical bills. And you've seen companies like Walmart and Target step up and start to raise wages in recent years. So that to me suggests maybe we're at a place where decades and decades of this sort of Jack Welch mentality of minimizing costs at all costs is perhaps losing its grip. But I think it's going to take a long time to get all the way back in the other direction. Human nature, ego. Let's talk about this for a second. And I'm going to be fascinated by your answer. I would submit that a ball player, football player, baseball player that has a great story tenure with a team, when he typically he retires, there's a part of him that wants to see that team fail because your ego suggests that they were great with me. I hope they suck without me. Here's my question to you. Do you think there was a part of Jack Welch that was hoping that GE failed once he left and handed it over to uh, Jeff Immelt, who, by the way, at the time, everybody said Jeff won over Bob Nardelli and Jim McNerney. Actually, he lost. Those other two won. But address that quickly. I see no evidence to to that. To the contrary, you know, when Immelt was missing quarters in what was it, 2008, 7, 8, right, right around the crisis, Welch famously went on your network and said, if he misses a gun, I'm going to get a gun out and shoot him, right? He was distraught. And probably not only for the fact that GE stock was in the tank. Right. So his retirement, which I think, you know, approached a billion dollars. He was a billion dollar manager. This guy didn't invent anything. He didn't found a company. He was a paid manager. He became a billionaire. He was on the Forbes list, right? All of a sudden, yeah, that's not worth what it once was. But I think he understood that if GE failed with the hand that he had dealt him out, it was at the end of the day going to reflect poorly on his legacy. Because in fact, there was a quote I found right as Welch was retiring. He said, the true measure of my success, it was something like this. I'm not reading it, but it was, this, was the, this was the gist. He said, you know, the true measure of my legacy, of my success, is how my successor does, how Imelt does in the next 15 years. And by that measure, Jack Welch was a failure. Fair enough. I love that. You understand the impetus for that question because whether or not I think there was a part of him and we all have egos. You always, in my opinion, again, it it happens at at financial firms like Goldman Sachs. I happen to love Lloyd Blankfein, but I'm convinced there's a part of Lloyd that did not want Goldman Sachs to do as well as it did in his aftermath. But that's for another conversation. So here you go in terms of General Electric. They were masters for years at beating the quarter. And when I say beating the quarter, it's seemingly every time they reported, they beat by a penny, blah, blah, blah. The stock went up. In retrospect, they were able to do that with financial engineering of the highest level. And this is just, again, my view. 0809, there were a lot of reasons for it. But two of the pillars of 0809 were the guys mostly at AIG Financial Products, eight or nine guys in Stanford, Connecticut. They were one layer. And the rest of it at the foot of GE Capital. So you can go back in 0809. You can blame everybody you want. But it's probably a group of about 35, 40 people that had their hands all around this. And there's a lot of legacy in that as well, because that was all under the auspices of Jack Welch. Well, hey, who was holding one of the biggest bags of subprime when it all went down, GE was. They bought WMC in 2005, right? They were right in the middle of that. 
So no question. And to your point about earning smoothing, earning management, you said, you know, it's your opinion. It's the SEC's opinion, guy. They got dinged for that. They paid like a $1.2 billion fine in 2009 for those very violations. So you're in good company if you can say the SEC is good company. So David, talk to us a little bit. You spent a lot of time in the book talking about what what I would just kind of categorize as style shift. Jack got in there and he cut to the bone and earned the nickname. And then they kind of set up the financial operations in a way that could kind of set like this company on a course, but they also made a lot of really big acquisitions. And I think you could just kind of argue that they were just one calamity after another. And they were the sorts of things that you would only see over time. And, and you know, the last 10 years since the financial crisis has been an unwind of this company. Talk to us a little bit about that. Were there any patterns that had emerged in the sort of targets that, you know, under Jack Welch they were interested in and kind of what was the undoing? Was it really the undoing during the financial crisis of what you just, you know, mentioned that it was was just things blew up in, in a way that they could have never imagined. But now there's a lot of industrial parts of this company that have been unwound, that sort of thing. Talk to us a little bit about that style shift and what you think, what does the company look like right now? Well, the company's being broken up, as you guys know. I mean, the, the broad pattern under Welch's 20 years was a move away from the industrial company that for most of the 20th century was one of the stalwarts of American industry, one of the original components of the Dow and the last original one standing, that at one point accounted for about 1% of GDP, right? I mean, GE made everything. GE made toasters and x-ray machines and rockets and like everything. GE helped put men on the moon. And then under Jack Welch, they become essentially a unregulated bank. And they start buying portfolios of office buildings and tie credit card loans and leasing operations of satellites, whatever they can. And so that, I think, is the big pattern recognition. Now, Emelt unwinds GE capital for the most part. It's a mess. It tanks the stock. And what we're left with a couple of years ago is three distinct companies under the GE banner. There's healthcare, there's aircraft engines, and there's power. And as we all know, those are three companies that are being split up right now, which I really see as the final end of the Jack Welch legacy. You know, he was the one who inherited really the company that GE was for much of the 20th century. He set in motion the processes that would ultimately tear it apart. And now we are finally seeing just that like explosion of the planet this is the last vestiges of the star dying. You and I have had so many great conversations with Joe and some of your other colleagues in the journalism space. And I think what's fascinating about you, I always love when folks kind of cross the Rubicon, right? You went from a beat reporter and you did as well as anybody can do in that. And then you start opining on things and then you kind of go heads down for a year or two and you write an epic book and it is an epic book. So we really want all our listeners to go out and read it. And Obviously, the first 100 of you leave that review and we're going to send it to you. I love the fact that now you feel free to have these sorts of opinions. Just on the way out here, talk to us a little bit about where are we right now? You know, as far as just if you want to put everything together, it's this weird. And I think Guy and I can say this, you know, in our careers, I've never seen geopolitics, domestic politics, monetary policy, fiscal policy. To your point, I think you use the term existential, what we are facing here with climate change. And I'm so glad someone like you has your finger on the pulse and you're going to be reporting on this sort of stuff. It feels like we are about as crucial time where all these things are getting smashed together. Thoughts on that? Am I I right about that? Or are we all just too much in the mix because we are people that others look to to kind of get some opinions on this sort of stuff. There's always this temptation, I think, among generations to feel like they're the unique, exceptional generation, right? Like that their moment in history is the most singular one. And of course, there's maybe a little truth to that. But there's no denying that we are at a real inflection point as a society, as a civilization, when it comes to climate. The science is clear at this point. If we continue emit carbon dioxide and methane and other planetary warming gases at the same rate that we are currently doing now, the planet's going to warm up real, real fast, and it's going to get really, really hot. And that's not just a day at the beach. We're talking massive heat waves into the 120s and 30s that last for months. We're talking 
agriculture being decimated in bread baskets of the world. We're talking about real sea level rise, which you know you can start to see in Venice and Miami on a bad day, but we're talking about real coastal destruction. And we're talking about much more severe storms. The science is just clear whether people want to admit it or not. And we're already seeing faster than a lot of people expected the results of that. So we now have this window. We know the problem. We're pretty clear that we have the solutions. And that's why, again, it comes back to a business story at the end of the day for me. Can we marshal the resources? Can we unlock the private capital? Can we get the regulations in place that support a whole economy, a whole global economy effort to make this transition to a, a net zero economy without compromising our quality of living and while in fact continuing to raise the quality of living for people in the developing world without blowing up, you know, like the global economy as we know it. It's a big thorny challenge, but the work is happening today, right? Anyone listening, like you, whether you realize it or not, are already a part of the story and can be. There's a million jobs out there. There's a million things going on. There's funds, there's companies, there's innovation, there's new technology coming up. And I just think it's like the most exciting story in the world. One, not only to cover, but to be a part of it and to be a part of our lives. David, I started this off by saying you were a badass. The conversation we had over the last 35 minutes galvanizes that for me. I want to thank you for joining us here on the tape. Thank you so much, guys. So much fun. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.